Welcome to Radio Who, What, Why. I'm Jeff Sheckman. There must be a dozen books out right now talking about the dysfunction in our politics. Everyday pundits, commentators, and journalists analyze why our political system doesn't work. Most all of them can't see the forest from the trees. What they miss, and what my guest Harvard professor Lawrence Lessig understands, is that Congress, the central institution at the core of our democracy, is broken. Not broken in a way that's easily fixable by a single election or by a new Speaker of the House, but that the institution itself has been so infected by things like big money, gerrymandering, and our modern-day methods of campaigning that just maybe the whole thing has to be pulled up by its roots and reimagined and rebuilt. In fact, that's what Lawrence Lessig put forth when he briefly ran for President of the United States. Lawrence Lessig is the Roy L. Furman Professor of Law and Leadership at Harvard Law School and the director of the Edmund J. Safra Center for Ethics at Harvard. He was previously a professor at Stanford Law School, where he founded the school's Center for Internet and Society and at the University of Chicago. He's the author, most recently, of Republic Loss 2.0, and it is my pleasure to welcome Professor Lawrence Lessig to Radio Who, What, Why. Lawrence, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you here. Is it just Congress that's broken, or is the degree to which it is broken really destroyed and infected every aspect of government today? No, I think you're right. I think the way it's broken has created a climate, a really destructive climate within politics uh, more generally. Um, but the focus, I think, of what we've got to imagine fixing is the crippled and corrupt institution of Congress. And one of the things that you talked about when you ran for president, and one of the things that you write about in, in Republic Loss 2.0, is that this isn't something that's easily fixable, that we really, given, given how many layers of, of problems and corruption there are, that it really needs to be pulled up by its roots. Yeah, and I and I believe the hardest challenge we've got is to figure out what the political movement to do that looks like, because it can't be a traditionally partisan movement. This is not a Republican problem. It's not a Democrat problem. It's a problem with the system. But every ounce of reformers' energy that we've got right now in American politics is completely partisan. We don't have any effective cross-partisan movement. Um, to address uh, any number of issues. And I think that's uh, the biggest challenge we've got when we think about being able to take on this problem and, and solving it. In trying to understand that, it's important to look at really the origins of this, because certainly if you go through the halls of Congress and ask members of Congress about the amount of time that they spend trying to raise money and and the time they spend with lobbyists, they'll tell you on the surface, at least, that they don't like it. Yeah, they hate it. Um, but the problem they have is that they live in such a short-term, with such a short-term horizon. They're, you know, they've got a two-year election cycle, which means that immediately after one election, they're beginning to gear up for the next. And whereas all of them, I think, look at the system and say, this system is broken, none of them have the time um, to begin to think about how they would change the system because what they're really worried about is how they're going to win control back for their party in the next election cycle. So they are the least likely reformers, even putting aside the more cynical accounts of why they might not want reform, which include the fact that this system gives them a pretty 
happy exit once they leave Congress as they move from Capitol Hill to becoming a lobbyist and have their salary increased um, you know, by factors of 10. The overlay to all of this is that the current system, even beyond the money and the corruption, is that it just doesn't work within the context of the kind of world that we have in the 21st century. No, that's right. And, um, and I think it's really critical for people to realize this is not just a complaint that people on the left could make. Mm-hmm. It's also a complaint people on the right should make. So regardless of your politics, um, when you look at our government, you've got to imagine certain things that you want our government to be able to do. So on the left, you know, we talk about better health care reform. We talk about taking on Wall Street. We talk about climate change legislation. On the right, people think about, you know, a simpler tax code. They think about smaller government. But all of those really important reforms uh, are basically rendered impossible by this crippled and corrupted institution that depend that we depend upon to make those reforms happen, and that's Congress. So um, because Congress can't function, uh, you know, you've got the president trying increasingly to exercise ever greater executive power. You have the courts stepping in and doing what Congress otherwise wouldn't do. But I think it's time for us to finally face up to the fact that it's this core institution that our framers imagined to be the most important institution of our representative democracy that just isn't working anymore. And because it's not, we can't address sensibly any of the problems that I think uh, all of us identify our government now faces. Which also raises the question of whether or not it is that critical an institution in government today, that arguably there are layers of bureaucracy in Washington that are institutionalized, that have been there through both Republican and Democratic administrations, and that the power that has been aggregated in those institutions outside of Congress is arguably more powerful. Well, certainly, certain institutions are, um, you know, more powerful than Congress. Um, you know, the Fed, uh, maybe NSA and uh, the CIA um, have become institutions that are more powerful than Congress. Um, um, but, you know, technically, if Congress got its act together, Congress, according to the Constitution, is the ultimate uh, boss of all of these institutions because it passes the laws that brings them into being that regulates how they do their work, and that could ultimately change how they, how they exist. So if Congress would only uh, you know, become, um, you know, nobody's thinking about utopia here, but just a you know, good enough for government work functioning institution, um, we could see radical change uh, uh, in, in many different contexts that I think a broad swath of America look at and just think, are, uh, just think is broken. Do we need to look at kind of the changes we've seen in so many other sectors of our society, the kind of creative destruction that technology, for one, has brought about? And do we need to look at that kind of dramatic change as we look at ways to reform and change the institutions of government? Of course. And, you know, many people, um, you know, look at this and say, what we know is um, the government doesn't work, so let's build the functions of government outside of government. Um, so they do all sorts of really creative things to, um, uh, you know, try to solve social problems without relying on the government. And, and I, you know, I applaud people who do that because I think there are important social problems we've got to solve and we can't wait around for government to, to step up and do its job. But I believe ultimately 
um, we need that kind of creative destruction to apply to government itself, um, because we need um, uh, we need a government that can address um, uh, the problems we face as a nation, and we need to be able to change the way this government um, is so uh, corruptly. Uh, interfering with parts of our society. So, you know, many libertarians will say, well, maybe we don't need a government. Maybe people can do stuff on their own. Well, that might be a, uh, a fine argument if we started from a world where there was no government. But what we've got right now is a government that's spending an extraordinary amount of money on uh, building the biggest military in the world by, you know, an order of magnitudes bigger than anybody else. What we've already got is a government that's spending an extraordinary amount of money to benefit crony capitalists um, um, who succeeded in, in buying protection or special favors from Washington. We already have a government that's deep inside of uh, building um, and controlling the money supply. We already have a government that's deeply regulating our society. So at least even for them, we've got to have the ability to make that government behave more sensibly. And, and that requires, I think, radical change in the way our government um, does its job. What did you learn from your brief foray into presidential politics in terms of the way the electoral system works and how that relates to these broader issues that we're talking about? Well, the first thing I learned is um, how deeply passionate ordinary voters are about this issue. You know, when I would have a chance, and it was really the most extraordinary opportunity I've had in my life, um, to talk to uh, ordinary voters, you know, whether it's a group of five people um, sitting around a table in Iowa or in New Hampshire, or any number of uh, uh, talks at colleges or in Rotary clubs or uh, other organizations across the state, uh, and they would understand what I was talking about. You know, this deep corruption in our government. Um, it was almost, uh, 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 you know, a conversion moment. People would become so passionately. Uh, uh, animated, talking about how frustrated they were with this existing system, um, that it gave me real hope that there was potential here, because if we could tap into that passion, we'd have the enormous, enormous potential for a movement. So that's number one. But number two, the depressing part about this is, um, you know, that the, the mainstream press, the political insiders, have, have so completely taken for granted that the system will be here and is not going to change, that that they're not even willing to entertain the idea of a campaign that's, you know, primarily, number one, focused on how it's going to change this corrupted system. And, and so what that convinced me of is that we needed a way to mobilize um, a movement that was much more uh, fundamental than just, you know, running a regular uh, election campaign, that, that it needed to become something bigger, and it's not clear yet exactly how we're going to do that. What did you see as the roles and responsibilities and failures of the media in particular, television, newspapers, etc., in terms of informing voters, getting information out there? Well, you know, I mean, we live in an incredibly competitive media environment. And, um, you know, if you acknowledge the truth about what that competition means, uh, what it means is the media can't really control itself. Um, you know, we had the whole month of August um, was a month of the media simultaneously giving Donald Trump uh, 24-7 coverage. You know, Donald Trump would just give a speech and there would be, he'd be, you know, he'd be more covered than the president would be covered if the president wanted to give, uh, you know, a national address to, to America. Um, he was constantly, constantly covered. 
but on the other hand, you had the media lamenting the fact that the media was constantly covering Donald Trump. So, uh, you know, they couldn't help themselves. But they couldn't help themselves because what the media knew is that as they covered Donald Trump, people were fascinated. They would tune in. They'd want to see what the what the clown was going to say. And, and so the media ratings, their ratings would go up. And as their ratings go, go, would go up, they would get more money. If they get more money, they get what they need to survive. So we're in this time when, um, you know, it's almost a machine that drives what the media is going to cover, not editorial judgment about what's actually um, going to help America understand the issues that America needs to resolve in the next election. Um, and, and and I think that reality is something we've got to understand and, and begin to, um, you know, strategize around. It's not, it's not like um, it's the media sort of, you know, gone wild. It's just the media losing control of itself. Um, and what's going to happen from now until, as far as we can see, is that um, uh, it's not going to be um, a, a media directed by how we, the question, how do we, get an American public who understands the issues so that they can make an informed judgment or vote, it's going to be what responds to the, um, you know, the Twitter traffic uh, fast enough to, um, to earn the points that these media stations need to, to get the money they need to survive. Because all of this seems to be taken to such extreme in this election cycle, is it potentially going to lead us to some kind of inflection point in all of this? It's... Um, I hope so. Um, you know, I, I, I think that we've never seen since Watergate such frustration with the deep corruption of our government. Um, in October, uh, YouGov did a poll in Iowa of Democratic primary voters and asked them if the next president could do just one thing, what's that one thing he or she should do? And by far, the number one answer was fix the corrupted um, system of funding campaigns. Um, and it's also astonishing that um, there's a broad swath of America, 72% according to a recent poll, um, that actually endorses the one change that Congress could pass tomorrow that would have a substantial, really radical effect on the way money corrupts Congress, and that's to enact small-dollar citizen funding of elections so that candidates can afford to run campaigns, never taking money in large contributions from large contributors, but instead taking money from small contributors that's either matched by the government or um, is subsidized through a voucher program that citizen voters get. Um, so we, we both have a strong desire for change. We actually see, the, see a solution that would be real change. But the real problem is we don't have politicians who are taking up the charge of you know, saying, this is the change I'm going to bring about. I commit to doing that. My administration will be a failure if I don't do this. Um, because that's what's I think, ultimately necessary to convince Americans that there's a real reason to hope again. Because right now, most Americans think there's nothing that can be done about this problem. So, you know, the vast majority don't even want to check in and see if they can try. You've talked about two things. One was a, a Citizens Equality Act that was part of your campaign and that you talk about in Republic Laws 2.0. And also this idea of a constitutional convention, an Article 5 convention. Talk about those. Well, yes. I mean, one uh, really striking fact um, that when I was thinking about running and putting together a campaign became clear to me is that um, uh, we actually could solve um, the biggest chunk of this problem through statutory changes by Congress alone. You know, one big part of the problem 
is the way we fund campaigns. And again, 72% of Americans already support the change that would radically change the way we fund campaigns. Second big part of the problem is the way we politically gerrymander districts so that politicians pick the voters rather than voters picking the politicians. Um, this produces uh, you know, a, a House of Representatives where something like 89 million Americans don't have a representative who cares at all about what they think because they happen to be in the minority party in a district where the majority is so solidly a majority that there's no way the majority party could ever lose, whether Democrat or Republican. And third, um, the, you know, the way in which we um, uh, um, you know, uh, set up systems for voting that makes it incredibly difficult for certain people to vote, um, uh, and while at the same time making it easier for other kinds of people to vote. Um, you know, those two problems, gerrymandering and um, voter inequal, unequal access to voting, are problems that Congress could solve tomorrow. Um, the Constitution explicitly gives Congress the power to set the districts that uh, will determine who, uh, who and how members of Congress are elected, and groups like Fair Vote have, have mapped out proposals that would really give us a representative Congress rather than this extremely polarized, dysfunctional institution that we have right now. So on the one hand, statutory changes could solve the biggest chunks of the pr chunk of the problem if we could only build a movement strong enough to demand those changes of Congress. But on the other hand, there are many who believe, and I agree with them, that we're going to need constitutional changes as well. And um, our Constitution has two paths to proposing amendments to the Constitution. One that Congress controls, and one that... Um, Congress doesn't control. Um, and because I believe Congress is not going to fix itself, I think we have to look to the path that Congress can't control, and that's for the states to call on Congress to convene what's called a proposing convention or an Article V convention. I don't want to call it a constitutional convention because that's a confusing term that um, suggests the idea of a convention that could actually change our Constitution. And this convention could not do that. All this convention could do is to propose amendments which then Congress would send out to the states to be ratified, and they would only be ratified if 38 states, three-fourths of the states, actually voted in favor of them. So that proposing convention, I think, is an idea that we ought to uh, explore and would be feasible, I think, if, if we could get a cross-partisan agreement to permit the convention to propose both uh, amendments that people on the right care about, whether that's uh, fiscal responsibility amendments or term limit amendments, as well as amendments that people on the left carry about, which is, I think, to restore the integrity to our political election process. Is there not a problem that, that when one looks at state houses across the country, that the same problems that we're talking about vis-a-vis -vis Congress exist writ small? Of course. And so, you know, fixing Congress is not the only problem that democracy requires in America. Um, but I think one really important thing that most people don't recognize is that um, Congress, with respect to gerrymandering, doesn't actually have to wait for the states to fix themselves. Congress could change the way its districts are drawn, and uh, Congress could change the way its representatives are elected. It could do what the framers of our Constitution have, which was to have multi-member districts where there would be more than one congressman elected from one district, which would mean that minority uh, interests in those districts, whether Democrats in a majority Republican district or Republicans in a de majority Democratic district would have a chance to have a representative. Those are uh, reforms which Congress has the constitutional power to enact tomorrow, whether or not states deal with um, their own gerrymandering problem or the, the problem that's been caused by um, the way that they draw their own districts. 
What, if anything, is the role of the courts as you see it in all this? Certainly, we look at something like Citizens United, which started with respect to the Supreme Court. So I think the Supreme Court has certainly um, you know, made the problem much worse. Um, I think Citizens United, the decision was written in a way that has encouraged real extremism from the courts. And a decision after Citizens United by a lower court, a case called Speech Now, is the case, case that actually created the super PAC. And I think there's no constitutional requirement that we have a system that permits super PACs. So I think the Supreme Court is, uh, you know, uh, owns a, a big significant chunk of responsibility for the problems with our democracy that we now see. But I also think that we spend too much time obsessing about the Supreme Court. You know, um, um, we're talking today on the anniversary, the sixth anniversary of Citizens United. Uh, most of the reform movements are just obsessed with reversing Citizens United, as if reversing Citizens United would get us a, a well-functioning democracy. But, you know, maybe it's just because I'm old, but I remember the democracy <laughs> that existed on January 20th. 2010, the day before Citizens United was decided. It was no utopia. It was not a, a democracy where Americans were fairly represented in Congress. It was not a democracy where money did not control the results. It was ever, uh, ever much as uh, a corrupted democracy as we have today. And what we have to recognize is reversing Citizens United is not enough. We need to change the way campaigns are funded. And we will only change that if we build a Congress or demand that this Congress uh, actually enact legislation to bring about that change. Now, Congress could do that, and the Supreme Court would not strike it down. The Supreme Court has signaled again and again that citizen-funded campaigns are perfectly constitutional. So Congress has the constitutional power to solve this problem if only we force them by creating the political power that's necessary to get them to act. Will something be gained in this election cycle when we look at candidates for president who raised and spent $120, $150 million only to be at 1% in the polls? Yeah, so, you know, that fact um, uh, is um, really important to understand uh, because many people look at that and they say, see, money doesn't matter. But, you know, when people like me are talking about the corrupting influence of money in politics, we're not talking, or certainly I'm not talking, about the way money corrupts the voters. I'm talking about the way money corrupts the politicians. So the problem, in my view, with money in politics is not the way it gets spent or whether it's effective or not. And I, don't certainly, I certainly don't believe that just because you have a billion dollars, you can get elected to any office you want. Look at all the... Um, you know, Carly Fiorini, uh, who ran for Senate in, in, uh, mm -hmm. in California and lost after spending unbelievable amounts of money. Um, you know, pretty, we've known for a long time that just because you've got money doesn't mean you can win. Um, but even though money doesn't buy the voters, we're pretty confident looking at the data and what our politicians actually do that the money certainly dramatically affects the politicians. Um, uh, Paul Krugman wrote a piece um, in in uh, in August, uh, really. Uh, I'm sorry, in September, really great piece about Republicans and Social Security. And the argument he made was, you know, it's bizarre. He said that if you listen to what the Republican candidates for president are saying about Social Security, the positions they are adopting are the positions that we know the Republican base opposes. So if you went to a Republican voter and said, what do you think about these proposals for changing Social Security? Overwhelmingly, the Republican base would reject them. 
But the Republican candidates were embracing them because those proposals were pr precisely the proposals that the funders of the super PACs supported. So here was a clear case where the candidates were bending over backwards to please the funders, even though they knew the voters did not like the position they were taking. So that's the point about money in politics. It's not that it corrupts us. It's, a, it's that it corrupts them. And all these people who point to, you know, the failure of Jeb Bush to win are not pointing to the failure of money to affect what Jeb Bush did or said. Nobody who can look at his platform can believe that money didn't have an effect on how he set up his priorities. It certainly did, and that's, that's the way money corrupts our political process. And yet what we're seeing now, at least in this presidential election cycle, is a loss of power of the funders, that suddenly they've lost control of that process. This is the greatest thing that Donald Trump has done in this process. Because what Donald Trump did, um, uh, when he stood on the debate stage, the very first Republican debate stage, and called out big money, uh, and then has repeatedly insisted that, you know, the big money has made the field of Republican candidates un in, unable um, uh, to uh, 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 be independent, uh, is that Donald Trump has um, uh, made it so um, uh, every Republican candidate is obsessed with the question whether uh, um, they're going to be seen as kowtowing to the big interests. Um, and so I think what he's done is he's made this issue toxic. So regardless of what happens with Trump in this campaign, will that change have a lasting effect? Um, we don't know yet. Um, you know, I think how this plays out with Donald Trump is going to be very important to whether we see a strong movement among Republicans to think about the problem of money in politics. There are amazing groups like Take Back Our Republic, which is a right-wing um, grassroots organization recruiting candidates to support changes to address exactly this problem. It's a new book by Richard Painter, who was George Bush's ethics czar, called Taxation Without Representation, which is you know, a right-wing attack on the current system of funding campaigns. His basic argument is, look, we should only be taxed if we're represented, but the only people represented in American government are the people who are funding campaigns. So until we are funders of campaigns equally, we should not be taxed. Um, and, you know, he has an amendment or a statute that basically says, unless everybody has a voucher to fund campaigns, then people who don't have vouchers should not be taxed, at least citizens. So I think we're beginning to see on the right recognition of how this system disables them from achieving the results they want from government, just like it disables people on the left, and that we've got to find a recognition that's cross-partisan of the need to change this. And so, you know, it's possible that people on the right will recognize this, and this will become an increasingly strong part of, um, you know, what uh, politicians on the right talk about. And if that happens, that's enormously good news for the, for the republic, because We've never seen fundamental change in our political system, uh, except if it's cross-partisan, except for one big exception, and that was the Civil War. And finally, if we were having this conversation four years from now, the next presidential election cycle, do you think we'll be looking at a system that's in any way different? 
Well, of course, the easiest thing to predict is change, um, uh, especially right now. And we're beginning to see really important technologies develop that um, you know, have the potential to dramatically change the relevance or the significance of, uh, of the way money matters. Um, so yes, there will be change. What the bigger question, more important question, I think, is will we see change politically sufficient to, um, to get people to um, uh, elect candidates who are going to bring about the statutory reforms that we need? And I don't know the answer to that yet. I'm you know, certainly doing everything I can to help bring it about, but, um, but we've not yet seen that fundamental shift among the insiders that will be necessary to make this change happen. Harvard professor Lawrence Lessig, his most recent book is Republic Lost, version 2.0. It's just out from 12. Lawrence, I thank you so much for spending time with us today on Radio Who, What, Why. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for listening and joining us here on Radio Who, What, Why. I hope you'll join us next week for another Radio Who, What, Why podcast. I'm Jeff Sheckman. If you like this podcast, please feel free to share it and help other people find it by rating and reviewing it on iTunes. You can also support this podcast and all the work we do by going to whowhatwhy.org forward slash donate.